Well, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, and actually, just because we're in the digital age of uh, Zoom meetings and COVID, uh, my guest who's joining me today is actually not um, on the line yet and is wrapping up what he's working on. Uh, and I think we've all been there running between meetings. So uh, we do make an effort to always have Unbind be a live broadcast. And so uh, we're gonna go ahead and do this. And when I'm hoping that Stacy Brown will be with us any minute now. Um, and once we do, I got a lot of questions, including why are you late? Just kidding, it happens. Um, but you know, this is actually a pretty timely episode. We are really, we're leading into InsureTech Connect next week. So uh, with our fourth episode of Unbind with Bindable, I should introduce myself. I'm Jocelyn Getson, Chief Growth Officer, and I'm really excited to kind of look at what is happening in the insure tech space because there is a lot going on. Um, every single day, you know, we're, we're hearing about new entrants into the market. Next week, if hopefully this audience especially is going to be either in attendance virtually or in person at ITC, I will be there in person. I'm already getting heart palpitations over my calendar next week, which is full. So, um, which is exciting. It's one of the first in-person events that we've actually had in a long time here. Um, so, but in the insure tech space, valuations are rising, uh, IPOs are happening, it feels like every single month. Uh, we're just seeing a lot of new development and it's a little bit of a gold rush to some extent as to um, how people are valuing the companies, uh, the, the funds that are being raised. Uh, but really all of that is stemming from the fact that there are so many uh, insure techs, uh, so many carriers and incumbents out there looking to embrace new technology. So really it's this meeting of the minds that's happening where you have uh, great tech, great opportunity um, and a fairly legacy uh, industry and a lot of legacy systems that are just ripe for disruption. So what we're looking at trying to do is really break down what the value chain is, what parts of the value chain should an incumbent, should an insurance leader be focused on and how they should be navigating, you know, what to do next. Uh, Stacy, who hopefully is coming on any minute now uh, is, and I'm looking at my phone to just see, uh, I do believe it'll be any second now, uh, but Stacy actually is the founder of InsureTech Hartford, as well as being a, uh, a leader at AxXL, head of global technology and innovation at AxXL and an industry veteran. That said, we've had the opportunity to have a few conversations and uh, over the years and really looked at uh, you know, what he sees on the horizon, what we're finding um, ourselves as we all go out there and start talking to new potential partners, vendors, these ecosystems that are emerging. Um, so really a lot to dive into. And um, you know, I think that what I might do is have to look at tackling either a couple of the questions myself, which uh, happy to do. I was hoping for more of a dialogue, <laughs> which could happen soon. Um, so when I look at what is happening in the insure tech space, I'm just gonna keep going with it. So uh, one of the main things that Bindable has done recently, so Bindable, we focus on distribution of products. So we come in the middle, we work with carriers, hopefully who have an API, that's the big, you know, uh, battle cry of mine, which is the more products we have on APIs, the easier they are to distribute, to embed. Uh, we actually work with carriers, but we're also working with the distribution channels, whether that be through traditional agency approaches embedded within other offers that are relevant. So we really sit in the hub and we want everything to be easier, whether that's distribution, whether that's 
even claims anywhere that we have consumer touch points, we're always looking to have partnerships or improve our own technology to make all of that easier. Uh, so we actually did a consumer survey recently that focused on you know, what consumers care about. And one of the overwhelming stats that we saw uh, was that 69% of participants admitted that they couldn't tell the difference between carriers. And here's Stacy. Hey, Stacy. <laughs> hey, Jocelyn, how are you? Hey, good. You just wanted to make me sweat a little bit today. So good job I, uh, dancing. <laughs> you know, my, my husband would tease that I normally talk to myself. So it's actually, you know, not, not that different, but <laughs> thank you for joining us. I'm so sorry. I apologize. Um, you know, sometimes unplanned things happen. So I appreciate, uh, appreciate you covering for me. Anytime. And of course, we know that insurance that happens quite often. So uh, unplanned yeah. things is exactly what, what we do here. So I'm going to back up because I do, I did kind of give a little bit of your background, obviously with AxXL, but also, you know, heading and leading, uh, being a lead organizer for InsureTech Hartford. Um, but, you know, as we were framing the conversation, you know, one of the goals today is just to be able to give our listeners the takeaways of what should they be focused on when they hear all the noise around InsureTech, when they hear the word InsureTech, when we're all at ITC next week, what should they be prioritizing in their conversations? Um, and in order for us to get there, I did want to kind of back up and, and ask you a really basic question, which is, how did you get into insurance? How did that happen? That's a good conversation starter. Um, well, I guess I needed a job and, uh, and there was one, you know, there I, you go. I was in, um, during the dot-com days, I had worked for some early stage companies and that's how I got into my IT career. I had a whole retail career before that. Um, but, um, I got, I got my first IT job in the late nineties and, um, and after the dot-com bust, um, you know, I was looking for work and I found another another startup down in, uh, in the lower, um, Connecticut area. And, um, and then nine 11 happened and, uh, and then that became bad news for me again. And one of my friends from college had gotten a job at travelers and he said, you know, give me a resume. I might be able to get you in over here. And he, and he did. Right. And I was looking at it as decent pay, good benefits, no weekends, you know, it sounds like a good job to me. And, um, and so that's how I got into it. Uh, but now here it is 20 years later, and, um, and I'm really passionate about the industry. I, um, I've turned into an insurance geek, so to speak. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you. And I think that's, it, it's great. It shows that you had that technology. And is that kind of what inspired you to really be a founding member of the InsureTech Hartford and get involved more in the InsureTech space itself as well? Yeah, pretty much. Um, so this so it was about five years ago now, um, I, I was seeing all these trends, um, you know, investors getting interested in early stage companies, threatening to use technology in new ways to disrupt the industry. And, and, I, and, I, and the, the term InsureTech uh, started popping up in some of the you know, articles and stuff. And I thought, hey, you know what? That's me, I'm InsureTech, right? I've been doing this at that point for 15 years. And um, it's, it's, it's the focal point of my, of life, you know, is yeah. you know, everything I'm doing at work uh, in, and if anything's going on in this department, I, I, I want to be a part of it. And, um, there was nothing really going on in, in the city of Hartford at the time, um, which was really unusual to me because there's a ton of insurance there. There was just really no insure tech. So I just started having events 
uh, as a means of getting people together and keep everybody informed and sharing information. And then uh, we started doing hackathons and things to help uh, drive uh, startup engagement and, uh, and, and, and it's just grown to what it is today. But initially I got started into it just out of my own self-interest um, yeah. on the subject. I think that's a really uh, cool thing, though, because I think, you know, and one of the areas that insurance, you know, where as we look at it is what does the workforce look like in insurance? Who are the people that, you know, 10 years from now, how do we attract new talent over the next few years? And 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 I've used this analogy maybe even on this show, but certainly I'm sure in our conversations, which is, you know, if you look at people who work at Uber, I don't feel like they took that job going, you know what, I'm going to disrupt the taxi service or I'm I work in delivery space. Uh, you know, I really feel that they they work for a tech company, and I and I think what's fantastic is, you know, you work for such a massive, you know, reinsurer and and you know traditional and been around for that for for generations, decades. I mean, uh, and now you're combining that with the tech side of things, and that's that's what it needs, right? It's like to kind of retain and maintain what we've been doing. We're going to need underwriters. We're always going to need actuaries, et cetera. But how do we merge that so that people are attracted to the industry itself? Yeah, so I recently helped out with an event that was being run by the Connecticut Department of Insurance geared towards uh, next-gen talent, and it was marketed at um, college students, basically. And um, you know, one of the things really is what is what is why should insurance be interesting? And I think um, people don't understand the amount of technology that exists in the insurance industry. And, and, and a level and layer above the technology is the data itself, right? Yeah. We're such a data heavy industry, um, not just the data that we produce, but all of the data we consume, right? Um, right? We harbor lots of data that have insights still to be unlocked that we've had in our coffers for years, right? Uh, generations right. even, right? <laughs> Some companies, I, I I know one one person at the Hartford who's third generation at the Hartford, right? <laughs> it's true. You're right. Like generational even within, yes. The, yeah. yeah. So, oh, my dad's worked here. My mom's worked there. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It's that so knowledge it, that we're handing down. And, and yeah. so all that data is out there, right? And and how do we how do we unlock, what can we unlock with it? And what will we do with that information once we have it? And so it, for, for people that love working with technology and love working with data insurance is 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 a wonderful place and that's why i'm still here 20 years later i came in as a techie guy i was a computer programmer software developer engineer whatever you want to call it uh, i wrote code for a living and built applications right and yeah. um and and i and i once i got involved and i started seeing all the different i mean in, insurance has so many different um use cases and benefits but the basics of it are always the same, right? Submission comes in, it gets quoted, gets issued, uh, gets amended, and uh, and then a claim comes in, it gets reserved, adjudicated, and then potentially paid, right? So yeah. that's the life cycle. And um, doesn't matter what line of business or whatever, but the thing is the way that that happens and the different business models around it, it's, it's just, it's such an interesting, you can never get bored uh, of insurance because there's always something different you can do. Yeah. And I mean, and there's a lot to be gained from data and the organizations. And when you're looking at that for, to really leverage it, you know, I think, I think there's, you're at such a disadvantage if you're not. And, and I know we have data lakes out there and it's the whole work of itself, just trying to, you know, uh, tap into it. But I mean, where do you see that data 
impacting the customer at the end of the day? How, how can insurers more effectively use it um, to really impact the customer's view of, of, of our space? Well, I think, um, you know, insurers tend to look at things in aggregate, right? And so hyper-personalization, um, it's, you know, people are looking into it, but I don't know that anybody's really cracked the code on it. And there comes an element to where regulation also makes that a challenge, right? Um, yeah. Because regulation says, hey, we've got to be fair. And, um, you know, there's certain factors you can't consider and stuff. And, um, and so I don't know that we'll ever get to that hyper-personalization uh, in insurance, but, um, you know, we're, we can be really transparent about pricing, right? That's one of the best things yeah. that I think we can do. Um, and I'm not talking about like exposing our APIs to aggregator sites, right? That's yep. not, that's not transparent pricing. That's just ease of shopping, right? That's right. Yep. Um, but we can be more transparent in pricing. In fact, a, a thing that's been getting a lot of attention lately is, um, you know, whether or not credit scores should be used as a part of, of, auto. of rating yeah. in, in, in auto, right? So, um, you know, it's a good, it's a good question, right? And you're seeing some, some of the, the new stuff like Loop and others that are really focused on, on not, on, on building products without it, you know, and taking, and Massachusetts, I know for a while has not included credit score, but right, how do we, because is it fair? Right, and so people smarter than me are trying to, trying to answer that, but, um, you know, clearly there's been enough question raised about it. And so the question is, right if you can't use credit score well what can you use right you, you have right. to note all the risks are different and you can classify them in certain ways but how do you do that fairly right and that's fairly. why loop and carrie ann and those folks are doing what they do yeah. right because somebody's got to come up with a new answer and a new model right um and it's going to be heavily reliant on data right so it goes right back to that that data it does so what, it can, does, carriers, and what can carriers do with their data for the sake yeah. of their customers, more transparent pricing. Absolutely. And, and it's that fine balance of using the data to your point, you know, for, for, for that transparency. And because I feel like customers are never going to want like a data driven uh, from an actuarial standpoint, you know, the avoidance of even wanting to take that risk is the other, you know, is okay. When we get to that point, and we've discussed this before, but where someone's like, an, you're like an algorithm, you know, I, we know your purchase behavior and what we're going to do. So it does get down to that drilled down. Are, are you going to have a claim or not? Yes or no. But insurance in it, that, that thought really ties into what we're experiencing in this hardening market. You know, we have a hardening market across the board where if you live in a coastal region, you know, you're definitely at risk of a hurricane. Cyber is another one, you know, everyone has um, a, a cyber uh, footprint out there that is, is ripe for attack, uh, climate change in general impacting all, you know, businesses. So, you know, how do you see that, the hardening market, that use of data to kind of understand what's happening, uh, impacting the adoption of tech, you know, and, and, and product development even? Well, there's always going to be an element of the unknown and the unpredictable. Um, uh, you know, if we can get to a point where, um, data insights equals clairvoyance, we will only have two things, insured people who don't need it and uninsured people that need it, right? Because no one would take on a risk if they, they knew that it, it, it was going to cost the money, right? And, yeah. uh, and, and, and if people knew that 
they were at lower zero risk of anything happening, why would they want to buy it, right? So there's this magic thing that happens because of the unknown factors in insurance that allows us to pool and spread the risk around, right? And that's why, you know, a few years ago in the healthcare space, there was a lot of debate about Obamacare and all that stuff and how introducing all these underserved and underinsured uh, people who had medical problems into, uh, into health plans was actually going to drive up the cost of healthcare because, you know, now all that stuff had to get paid out of the same pool, which was being funded basically by pretty much the same, uh, same people. So it was, um, you know, that was just one example of, of the challenges there. And yeah, you know, yeah, no, I, I think you see it even in driving. If we know this road, this lane has a higher propensity of accidents and that's the route you take to work you know, then this is the alternative. I mean, so is so, that- So question though, what happens when all the yeah. traffic starts taking an alternate road? And does that road then start becoming the riskier road? Exactly, like a Waze thing, where, right? Where people start going down through a parking lot because that's how Waze told me how to go. You're right. And then it does, it does become the riskier road. And then, yeah, that one I mean, person- I, I gotta admit, I'm guilty of driving down a road because Waze told me to look <laughs> to my left and my right thinking like, this is a very residential neighborhood. and. <laughs> You know, this was probably a really quiet place at one point in time. And now cars are going down the street all day because that's what the apps are telling everybody to do. It's so true. And it, but it gets back to your point that there's always that element that it can, it can shift. There's always something to monitor to, to uh, that unpredictable factor that people actually follow what they're supposed to do. And then, you know, the risk opens up somewhere else. So it's, uh, to me, it's a really interesting, one of, one of the things in, to back up, cause I started to, to kind of tackle this uh, right before you joined, but it's, the fact that one of our surveys, one of the bindable surveys that we did with consumers was around the fact that the overwhelming percentage of participants, like 69%, um, you know, had said that they can't tell the difference between insurance companies. And I think it was, uh, I'm just actually going to read my notes, 79% expressed the sentiment, the sentiment that most insurance providers are the same. Uh, I mean, which, you know, to us on the inside, we, they all, there's always nuances, but for anyone on the outside looking in, the fact that they really are not telling the difference. Uh, what do you think creates that disconnect? Well, number one is is probably just knowledge uh, and, and education, right? And what people choose to know about. It's almost like a bank is a bank, right? I put my money in my checking account. I write a check or use my debit card. Why does the logo on the door make a difference? Functionally, it, it works the same way right? Some banks have more fees than others. If some banks have more minimum deposit requirements. And, uh, but at the end of the day, a bank is a bank. I'm putting money in the bank and then accessing it when I need it. Um, right. So insurance, there's a certain commoditization around some of the product lines like, like auto, right? The state says this is the minimum requirement. So yeah that unless my bank tells me I need more coverage because I'm taking a loan on my vehicle, um, I'm buying the, the, the least amount of insurance that I can, not because I'm making a decision about what is the best product for me, but because somebody tells me I have to buy the product and I'm just gonna buy the one that gives me, that I can find that gives me the lowest cost point um, and allows me to check the compliance boxes, right? Right. So people, a lot of, you know, it's often said about insurance, it's, it's something that's um, sold, not bought, right? Because pe people will go out and say, yeah, you know, let's put our good clothes on on Sunday because we're going to go shopping for, for, for homeowners insurance, right? 
Right. Well, we don't, work, thing, we, we don't work weekends, so <laughs> with digital. Well, we do, out. actually. And that's part of the trends, yeah. too. Like in the old days, you know, Saturday morning was the day that you went to the bank, you went to the insurance agent, you did all those things because you were working all week. You didn't have the time. Yeah. These weren't open 24-7. So you had the Saturday mornings before noon. You had to get to all these errands. And uh, but now consumers uh, have changed and um, they expect to be able to access things about their policy and change their policy and, and cancel or buy new policies or add new coverages 24 hours a day when it makes sense to them when they when they feel that they need to. Yep. So um, I'm sorry. It's I'm true because you're going to buy your bit. car. Yeah, you're going to buy your car on a Saturday and you want that accessibility. You're not, you know, you got to drive it off the lot. And how do you how do you do that? And no, I think the advent of, of the digital marketplace, obviously, over the last few years, and that just continues to, to grow is is a critical one to, to give people an access point. Agents are still a big component of it. Um, but you know, it is, it's interesting to see how, how do you think insurers can bridge this gap, you know, from, you know, this no name, I just need insurance. I'll take it from whoever offers it first. How, how does that, that, that bridge get, you know, created between, between the consumer and the brands? Um, I guess it's a, it's a it's a tough that's a tough question but i'll i'll cite um i'm trying to remember now i have to do a quick um see if i have this open actually but there there was a recent study that capgemini um published they do their annual insurtech report and uh, yeah. they also do their annual insurance report and they in, the, in there they talked about care right um care was an acronym for convenience advice and reach and nice. I really think they nailed it. Um, yeah, I, I think that's what it comes down to. Um, you know, you have to be there. Most part of what I was just saying before, you have to be there yeah. when the customer needs you 24 by seven. That's a convenience thing. The advice part, um, you know, that's um, that's a trickier one, right? Because for commoditized products and things we were just talking about, um, you know, 79% of people buy an auto, feel that auto is auto. And you know what? It kind of is. What kind of advice do you need when you're just trying to buy the minimum state coverage, right? Yeah. Requirements. yeah. Um, but when you're somebody who has larger assets and you and you start getting concerned about risk of loss, and now you start thinking, um, you know, a little deeper about this stuff and and you need, you need to, to tap into experts. And this is yeah. why there will always be a human in the loop in the insurance process, I believe. Um, there, there comes a point in people's lives where they have to make decisions about their insurance and they realize like, I should probably talk to an expert about this, right? right. And so that advice piece is really, really important. So, you know, we've seen digital brokerage in other industries, right? Um, and and I, don't, I don't know that we are good at doing that yet in insurance. And I see it, some, some carriers doing it by like sending newsletters and trying to proactively push information to people who aren't necessarily looking for it when they're looking for it, right? And, right. Uh, um, but the advice no, piece- No, I think it's a good point. It, the advice piece is really, I, I agree. I think it's critical. I think, um, you know, at Bindable, just for, for reference with the, we do have quote to bind carriers on the platform and we have a lot of carriers that don't have bind on their API. So it requires our agency. We have an agency, we, we support our partners, agents, we, we license our tax. So we're, we're all about an agent being, you know, somewhere in the background and it, it does create an omni-channel experience. But even when there's bind options available, they still want to talk to an agent. So it's not just, you can't just say, oh, because 
there's not enough products that you can purchase digitally. When the average premiums are close to $1,000, if not much more, much higher for auto and home bundling, you know, you're, when you're going to spend that amount of money, you want to make sure, especially if you're switching from a carrier or, you know, have looked elsewhere, or maybe have a couple of prices in front of you. What's the difference? You know, what am I getting? What if this happens? So I feel like even though education is a critical, you're right. I think that trusted advisor role, maybe where the evolution happens is right now it's always the insurance agent and it does need to be a licensed person. But I think, you know, whether they find that agent through, you know, their home mortgage company, or they're finding that agent through um, an embedded offer from a brand that they recognize, you know, so I think how they find the agent might, might change. They're not waking up Saturday and, you know, going to Main Street USA, not everybody, it still is relevant, but making sure that the Main Street USA agent has a presence uh, online, but also just that can, that's where that convenience and advice needs to really come together. You can't say, oh, because we offer it in, you know, this brand's journey and it's embedded and it checks every box, which we do all day long with our partners and it's fantastic. They still want to talk to an agent. So making sure that there's, there's someone at the back end, I agree. I think it's going to be a long time before, before that shifts. And, you know, you, um, you actually touched on um, the last part in the, in the, in the Capgemini uh, report, right? So they call it care, convenience, advice. And the last part was reach. So um, yeah. Embedded insurance, being there where the customer is, um, and being multi-channel or omni-channel, however we're calling it, whatever we're, right, call whatever it. we're calling it. Um, yeah. Bionic you know, insurance. There's a lot of terms out there. Yeah. That, exactly. that reach component is the third very important part. So how do, how do insurers, um, you know, do a better job of differentiating? It's focusing on those, those three factors. It is. And one area I wanted to bring up too was uh, with you is around value added services. So, you know, having that core insurance product and maybe how carriers can and should leverage value added services, which is one more way of describing the ecosystem, right? And what have you seen kind of coming out recently? Or is there certain products that you see are really, you know, either behind the, the, the missing an opportunity to really capitalize or I, I can say cyber, you know, tying like a risk mitigation service with the insurance product makes a ton of sense, but I'm sure you've seen other great examples too, but. Yeah, I like, I think just today I was reading about uh, USAA is actually reselling um, uh, Chubb's uh, personal cyber cover. Yeah, their Blink product, that the personal cyber. Product, yeah, yep. for personal cyber. And I'm like, yep. huh, well, that's that's interesting, right? So they've got USAA agents selling Chubb insurance, right? And Yeah, um, it's pretty cool to see, though. I mean, to see that kind of, it gets back to what's best for the customer, you know? And if you, if, if you have a great product that's easily, you know, and the API does play, and if you can integrate it easily, it's like, why not? So I, yeah, I was excited, about that, I was encouraged by that. <laughs> what's also big about that is USAA basically not trying to be something that they're not, which is experts on cyber, right? And right. maybe they maybe they're working on that, but you know, obviously they're they're choosing to use third party for for a reason. So I'm just assuming that's a part. No, I mean we we see that um, a lot um, on our side. It, it, we'll have uh, and a lot I can't name, but we'll have insure uh, tax or even carriers that might be monoline, might not be in all 50 states, and they can supplement by offering products on a white label standpoint in, in 
for quoted, not sold, for states they're not live in, for products they're thinking of, but don't have yet. So I agree. I think there's the combination of doing what's best for the customer and, and, and allowing you know, the experts to do their expert, but also that learning and that data component, uh, which comes from forming partnerships, uh, maybe right. outside of where you normally would have looked. And that was just product, but I think if your your question was more about you know value added services, um, you know I've seen we saw travelers did that thing with um, Amazon where you can go and get um, devices for your home uh, and save money on your on your homeowner's policy, right? Yeah. Um, we've seen um, so I work in um, in the commercial insurance space, right? And that's another area where there's a lot of discussion and a lot of things being discovered, but there are these financial barriers. Like in personal lines, people buy stuff either number one, because they have to, or number two, because they want to, right? In commercial lines, people only buy things when it makes sense, right? <laughs> financial That's sense. That's right. right. Financial so sense. So when you talk about things like IoT, right? And boy, we can monitor these buildings and tell you when there's a water leak or when the temperature is too hot and maybe there's a fire or whatever, right? Like that's all great, but make the business case for installing the sensors and monitoring it, right? Yeah. Oh, suddenly it becomes a lot more difficult. Who's supposed to pay for that? Well, the insured doesn't want to pay for that, right? So this kind of right. stuff gets really, um, you know. What happens if they really get hacked? Because, that's always my other. <laughs> well, <you> know, <laughs> there's enough fear flying around on some of that cyber stuff right now that it's helping sell, but, um, but still, you know, there's, there's real risks out there. And, and the thing is they're already covered. And so people are having a hard time understanding why they should be paying for extra services to their insurance company. I, you know, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a it's challenge. true in the personal line side, you know, you see the leak detection as well. Like anything that's, yes, we understand the preventative, the catastrophic preventative, uh, you know, uh, application for, for sending a consumer that, but you're right, is the value prop translating? Does a consumer want to have a flood? No. Would they like to know about it sooner? Sure. But installing it, going through that hassle, you're right. It's not benefiting them day one. It's, it's benefiting that insurance company to make sure they, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, like, what's it tied to? Can you have more services that, you know, uh, even if it's not a full leak that you, you, you get some home repair. I don't know. There's a lot of different ways to, to package. But I agree. I don't well, think are, the value probably companies, translates. There are companies that have actually been doing this kind of stuff for years, like Hartford Steam Boiler, right? They're yep. part of Munich Re and, you know, they've been into the whole manufacturing industry and all the machinery there. And, you know, they, they, they're helping manufacturers offer warrant, you know, product warranty and able to monitor maintenance and stuff like that. And, um, you know, they're, they, they have true experts, engineering experts uh, in, 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 their, in their field, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, you don't just go spin that up as an insurer, right? It's taken them a lot of years and, 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 and to be able to, to, to have that level of expertise. I know the, the company I work for, you know, one of the, one of the core expertise things is, um, is fire suppression, right? And so we have um, we have a team of people who are really good expert at at knowing everything about fire suppression, right? And right. we come in and do engineering. Uh, They're the ones you party stuff. with, is what I hear. No, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the risk managers, um, great great people to party with. And the yeah. um, uh, the other the other thing that I've seen is uh, you know again another XXL thing is the the construction ecosystem where they're they're trying to um, create stickiness with um, 
with their customers by by realizing that they've got all these connections and relationships with all these construction technology firms why not put them to, together into an offering for for clients right so um you yeah. know they're, they're building a whole ecosystem around construction technology as a way of creating stickiness for for customers um and uh so yeah there's just there's a there's a lot of ways that people are trying to figure out how to introduce value add uh into the equation whether it's yeah. on the personal line side or the commercial line side and i think that there's still huge opportunities for it um and and i'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next I am too. And on that note, as we're wrapping up, I, I mean, ITC is next week. I was just uh, saying earlier that I feel like uh, it's like the amazing race. You know, I'm going to be like running from all these meetings that I've overscheduled somehow. Um, what are you looking forward to? You know, other than Ludacris, who's, I guess, doing the closing show. But uh, <laughs> is there, is there sorry, uh, you what, I'm, what I'm not looking forward to? No, actually, I'll, I'll probably be there. Um, yeah. I, I think. Um, I look forward to uh, events like ITC um, every year, and I'll tell you, it's been hard for for me for the last eighteen months. I'm, I mean, you're literally talking to a guy who takes personal days from work to go to InsureTech conferences, right? So that's yeah. that's how geeky I am. Uh, <laughs> you didn't so have just to admit me, that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, but uh, yeah. yes, uh, my name is Stacy Brown, and I have a problem. <laughs> Love it. But I'm looking forward to meeting. Uh, people face to face more. Um, you know, it's started to kind of happen again, but being able to be in that environment is going to be really fun and, and exciting. And that's where the most productive conversations uh, are going to be happening. Um, also, looking forward to um, seeing what some people are doing that I'm not aware of yet or that I'm yeah. not into because it's such a massive industry. Nobody knows it all, right? And yeah. so you're always going to learn when you go when you go to events like this. I've had people say that they're like, oh, there's a lot of vendors. I'm like, but that's vendors are, are like there's it's shifted. It's like it's their opportunities. You know, vendors meaning yes, you maybe pay to work with them or there's a partnership, but you're right. Like there's so much to learn from uh everyone in InsureTech somehow a vendor because we really, you know, you can't work independent without the paper and the risk taker and yeah so i i agree i think there's so much to see next week i'm really really looking and you owe me a drink after you know being late so i'm looking forward to that as well but uh you know to to kind of like recap for the audience here uh it, to put you on the spot but for an insurance leader is there are there like after kind of everything we covered are there a couple of takeaways that you'd want someone to walk away and, and that uh, that they that somebody should focus on. So if I'm an insurance leadership, what are a couple of the things that I should, you know, make sure that next week I go talk to someone about or start paying a little bit more attention to? Um, that's a good question. I'm going to take a different angle, something that we haven't really discussed. And it's just because I've been, um, you know, re-listening to the book, um, The Innovator's Dilemma. And I don't oh, know. If you, haven't if you know. I'm writing it down. It was it was written in the mid '90s by a, a Harvard professor who had spent years doing studies on multiple industries about innovation and why some companies um, could be successful with it and why other companies would would not. And one of the things that was interesting is it is it's the, the innovator's dilemma is this concept of trying to figure out how to balance between investing your resources of, to sustaining the current because that's what's expected and that's what shareholders want they want tomorrow's paycheck and all that kind of yeah. stuff 
and then knowing how much resource to invest in the future, not just in terms of continuous improvement of the current, but also the disruptive side of the future, right? The kind of future that takes everything that you know today and makes it kind of just not important anymore, right? And, yeah. uh, and, and the thing is that that type of uh, investment is very difficult to, it's actually impossible to justify because you're looking for um, financial proof and evidence and predictions on markets that don't exist yet. And, um, and, and it's, and it's, and, and it is the truly the innovator's dilemma. It's like, how yeah. do I, how do I make these investments? How do I do this stuff when the, when the evidence is not there to support the, the payback? It's and that is so critical. I think it was uh, Dig In a couple of years ago has had Wozniak, Steve Wozniak as a keynote. And that was one of the things he said that he struggled before, you know, he, he was Wozniak, right? But struggled to, mm -hmm. to get the attention, the, the, the budget, the investment to try new things because they're all crazy ideas, all of them. You know, they're all that the market's already, insurance is, uh, you know, sold, not bought. All of these reasons for us to keep, doing what we do and incrementally improve when you're right there's this leapfrog that that's a leap of risk but it really can have the most reward especially for our consumers but definitely i think for the bottom line as well that's so great hopefully i'm leaving people with enough of a nugget there to, to at least want to go and learn more about what is this innovator's dilemma love it this is great i really appreciate you joining and i am looking forward to seeing everybody but seeing you as well at itc next week and um, appreciate the audience joining us today. Uh, we will be sending out a recorded version of the episode afterwards. And also you'll be seeing an invite for our upcoming podcast in uh, December, I think with Ryan Hanley. So looking forward to that as well, but great talking to you, Stacey. I awesome. appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jocelyn. Have a great Anytime. day. See you next week. You too. See you next week. Bye-bye.